Amazing. Ladies and gentlemen, good morning and thank you for joining. What should I say? Good afternoon. <laughs> you could be joining from anywhere in the world now. Here's the good news. We're going to read a story out of yesteryear, and yet it resonates with meaning and power and profundity and important lessons for life in today's day and age. For such, my dear friends, is the story of the Megillah. Any story in Torah, but especially the story of the Megillah. Today we are going to talk about identifying the face of evil. And I don't think that we can overemphasize the importance of what we are about to learn. You're asking why, eh? Why, why is that so important? Because in today's day and age, evil masquerades behind a very, very ugly screen that looks beautiful. The wolf is wearing sheep's clothing. And if we can understand how Esther identified evil in her time, I believe that it will enable and empower us to stare evil in the face today and to confront it, for confront it, we must. Before I begin today's class, I want to acknowledge a generous family from our shul that's come forward to sponsor today's class anonymously. May Hashem grant them that they merit to hear the besurot vote, the good news that they are hoping for over the next couple of days. And that there should be ach toiva chesed, only goodness and kindness, happiness and joy in their mishpacha and for all of us in Merz Hashem. Amen. We are in the midst of studying the seventh chapter of Megillat Esther, the scroll or book of Esther. Esther has brilliantly orchestrated things up till this point. We've studied that in previous episodes. The, the brilliance, the sheer brilliance of Esther is dazzling. And she has Ahasuerosh exactly where she wants him to be. He says, who? 
who would dare? Who could this be? Pedic Zion. Pasuke. The last time we studied this, we began to read this verse, and today we will actually look into it, delve into it, and appreciate the incredible amount of information that's packed into just a few short words, as, of course, is the style of the scripture of our holy Tanakh. Vayoymer hamelech achashverosh. And the king Achashverosh said, Vayomer la Esther. And he said to Esther, Mihuze, who is this? Ezehu, who could this be? Asher Milo Libo Lasos Cain, who, so to speak, is comfortable, has the audacity to be able to do something like this. Who is this? Which one is he? Before we begin to study this verse, which incidentally, if you stop and think for a moment, is very awkward, I want to put an important issue on the table. An issue that cannot be glossed over, although interestingly, by and large, our sages don't directly address this. But when we study their teachings properly, you will see that this question is dealt with at great length. This is the moment that Esther is finally going to confront the evil of mass genocide. This is the moment that she will unmask the perpetrator, the maniacal murderer who intends to wipe out millions of Jews in one day. There's an inherent problem here. <laughs> you know that, don't you? This is not just about Haman. Achashverosh was more than a willing partner. Haman offered lots of money. Achashverosh said, that's fine. It's okay. I'm as happy to do this as you are. The Gemara tells us that when Esther was about to enter the throne room of Achashverosh, Uninvited, a very dangerous thing to do. Something which could have caused her immediate demise. Esther goes forth with confidence because she feels the presence of Hashem with her and she's not smoking something. She knows, she feels it. Apparently, those who have the presence of Hashem with them, they know it. She was keenly aware of the fact that Hashem's presence was leading her. In the Yomara, in Meseches Megillah, on page 15b, says that suddenly Esther stops. 
she's halting in her tracks, the Shechina is not with her. And the Gemara discussed this, why, why this is the case. The Gemara identifies the prayerful words that Esther begins to petition heaven with, lifted from the 22nd Psalm. And the Gemara says that Esther prays to be saved from the hands of a dog and then later switches tunes and she asks to be helped from the mouth of a lion. And the Gemara seems to indicate that Esther was first praying to be saved from the hands of a dog. Save me from the hands of this dog who's singularly focused on attacking me. And then, she asked for salvation from the mouth of the lion. And it seems that somehow her initial prayer in which she focuses to be saved from the dog, don't cut it. She needs to adjust her prayer. She needs to refocus. And she needs to be petitioning heaven to be saved from the mouth of the lion. There are at least two majorly different schools of thought. Very different schools of thought in understanding the words, the cryptic statement in the Gemara. The Maharsha, who is the primary expositor on matters such as these in the Talmud, suggests that Esther's problem was that she focused on Haman. Haman is the dog. Haman does not make decisions by himself. He is not the regent, the royal. He is not the king. He can carry out things. He was ringed and empowered. It is he who goes about the task of having this genocide planned and its message disseminated. But Haman is miyad or midekela from the hands. The hands indicating that which he does. But Esther doesn't pray to be saved from Ahasuerus. And this, according to the Mahashah, is a mistake. Mahashah says that the emphasis can be seen in the hands or the mouth. A king is an Aryeh. A king is metaphorically, in euphemistic terms, a lion. And a lion, he says, the king gives orders. He doesn't do things by himself. It's me pi Aryeh. And so the Maharshah says that Esther initially was praying to be saved from Haman. And that caused the Shekhinah to depart because Esther needed to rely on Hashem alone, not assuming the king would help her. In other words, when she was praying to be saved from Haman, the assumption might have been, Ahasuerus is good. He cares about me. He will do what's necessary to save my people. I just need to get through to him. He's a good guy. And because Esther's prayers are misplaced, because Esther's prayers are focused, but focused in the wrong direction, the Shechina departs her. It's a very difficult uh, statement. It's a hard Gemara to swallow. For this reason, Esther loses the Shechina. 
it's certainly necessary for us to be able to frame this in the panorama of HaKadosh Baruch Hu Medakdek B'Tzadikim Asaira that Hashem makes these exacting demands with the greatest of precision from the holiest of the holy, the really great righteous men and women who walk amongst us, who are judged on an entirely different scale. It would seem to me, whilst I didn't find this written openly, it would seem to me that the issue is not just that the prayer is misplaced. It wasn't a precision-driven prayer. She was praying to be saved from Haman and not praying to be saved from Achashverosh. It seems to me that the issue here was a lack of pure betochen, of pure trusting in Hashem. There are at least two or maybe three major precedents in which we see that tzaddikim, that the righteous, are judged for not having placing their, placed their trust in Hashem absolutely, assuming that there are other forces that could come to their aid. It is Yosef HaTzadik, the righteous son of Jacob, Joseph, who languishes in prison for almost an additional two years because he relied, he relied on the baker. He said, you are, after all, an important man in the Pharaoh's cabinet. He will surely realize what has happened Sorry, not the baker. The baker got hung. The butler. That was important in Egypt. Where are you going to get your fix from? You know? Where are you getting your next drink from? The master of drinks <laughs> in antiquity is a very important man. Today in Canada, we call it the LCBO. It's not an important part of the government. That's the way they collect all your money from alcohol and marijuana. Okay, let's leave that for now. The point is, Yosef relied on a mortal. Now, for you and me, this might not be sinful. After all, Yosef reasoned that Hashem had put the mortal in his path so that the mortal should do what the mortal must do. And in the end, Hashem is orchestrating everything. True. And indeed, it was the mouth of that very butler who brings the knowledge of Yosef before the Pharaoh, but not before Hashem forces his hand. And that's because a tzaddik like Yosef was expected to rely on Hashem and Hashem alone. It's God's business how he orchestrates this. We don't tell Hashem how to do it. He knows what to do. And because Yosef didn't rely fully on Hashem, he languished in prison for almost two years. That seems like a rather harsh, almost draconian sentence. But HaKadosh Baruch Hu medaktik. God is very, very exacting. Expecting the highest level of devotion from tzaddikim. When Moshe Rabbeinu saw one Jew raise a hand and throw a punch at his fellow, he exclaimed, Russia, wicked person. Why would you throw a punch? Why would you raise your hand? This is Dasar and Aviram. And what did he answer him? Oh, you now come you now come to eliminate us the way you did to that Egyptian? And it says, Moshe realized that that which he had done 
eliminating that Egyptian taskmaster who was tormenting that very Hebrew was known, and it says he feared. Moshe Rabbeinu feared. And Rabbeinu Bachaya says, because Moshe feared, this is why the Pharaoh actually arrested him. In other words, it was when Moshe Rabbeinu feared that he opened himself to the possibility of things going wrong. Who wouldn't be fearful? You did something. Now it's apparently public knowledge. Who wouldn't be fearful? From Moshe Rabbeinu, Hashem expects more. Esther Hamalka is walking into the throne room, risking her life for Klal Yisrael. But she believes Ahasuerus will certainly come to her aid. She just has to get past the door. She just has to get past Haman. And by the way, Haman and his minions were trying to stop Esther from entering the throne room. He knew a lot more than we give him credit for. He had people stationed there. And there were many miracles that happened as Esther walked down that corridor. But Esther thought once she gets through to Ahasuerus, it's straight sailing. And the Shekhinah departs. And she realizes that she cannot rely on Ahasuerus. She has to rely only on Melech Malchem Hamlochem. Because, as our sages point out, Ahasuerus hated the Jewish people. He was an anti-Semite. He was only too happy to allow Haman to bring about his nefarious plans. Indeed, the Gemara tells us, when Mordechai wanted to ring the alarm and he said to the people, the Haman, the Haman, the prime minister has risen above the king, he means that Haman has now said what Hashverosh was afraid to say. It was always there in his hateful heart, but he was afraid to bring it forth. And now he's brought it forth. So these are the details that frame this dramatic moment. Esther knows full well that Ahasuerus is part of this plan. And therein lies the inherent issue, the problem and the challenge with the next two and three verses is, how is Esther going to blame this on Haman when Ahasuerus is a willing partner? In fact, Ahasuerus is feigning innocence. Who could this be? Who would do such a thing? Do you have amnesia? Do you not know that you gave Haman the ring? Do you not know that there is an entire nation that is slated for mass genocide in one day? This happened under your nose. You agreed. This is an inherent problem. It's a really serious issue. And casual reading of the Megillah doesn't like, bring this to mind at all. What's the issue? Sure, you know, Ahasuerus is arranged now. Ahasuerus is a good guy. And Haman's a bad guy. And Esther now has everything orchestrated and arranged. And Ahasuerus says, oh, who is he? And Esther has to simply point the finger at Haman. And Ahasuerus will say, him? Off with his head. It's not so simple. Ahasuerus is a part of this. And Esther knew he was a part of it. Hashem made sure to communicate it to Esther. And what happens now? What happens now? Ahasuerus is ready to listen, but he's not going to be prepared to take responsibility. He's not going to say, oh yeah, that's me. 
I, I was going to kill you, but you know what, Esther? Now I just realized that wouldn't be such a nice thing to do. This is the inherent issue, my friends. This is a really, really serious problem. The Ma'am Lois touches upon this, I think more so than any of the other Mepharshim that I saw. The Ma'am Lois touches upon this, and he says, Achashverosh was a Sony Yisrael. So how's this going to work? So the first thing that I want to mention is that Achashverosh always was careful to play both sides of the fence. He's a brilliant politician. Very shrewd. The Mamloi says, When Achashverosh spoke to Haman, and everything was a public record, of course, this is the royal palace, the king speaking. He was very careful not to incriminate, not to label, not to mention the specifics. He never said, oh, they're yours for annihilation. He never said that. He says, hmm, Haman, we have a Jewish problem, eh? Yes, says Haman, a terrible problem. Here's my ring. Figure out a solution to the problem. Wink. A final solution to the problem. But he never says, put him in cars and send him into a gas chamber. Just as the Nazis, Yumach Shemam, were careful not to leave their fingerprints. There are no orders that explicitly state gas and, cream, and cremate. There are no orders. The Nazis, who are the spiritual heirs of the demonic Haman, would write, Sonderbehandlung, special handling. Cargo that requires special handling. All in code. Even Haman was careful to write everything in code, in veiled ways. Achashverosh was entirely at arm's length. He could never be prosecuted by the international court. Because Achashverosh was always playing two sides of the fence. If I decide to rescind, if I experience regret, I just find an excuse. Who, me? I said that? Never! You must be imagining something. I didn't realize that. I never said that. That was, we had a discussion about problems. I mean, every king deals with problems. Multicultural issues. It's not unique. It's not genocidal. It's not xenophobic. It's a, just dealing with issues. Mamluyas adds something very interesting. He says, quoting the Mepharshim, he says, Achashverosh was also hedging his bets with God. He wasn't sure if he was such an atheist. He wasn't sure that the Jewish people were already a foregone conclusion that Hashem would abandon. He wasn't sure. He thought that the Galut had proven itself 
and that God's promises would not be kept, but he wasn't sure. He was, as they say, hedging his bets. The Yaris Devash, the Bienes and Ebeshitz, gives a fascinating explanation as to why and how Ahasuerus' anti-Semitism had developed and why he was so willing to see a final solution perpetrated against the Jews. The Yaris Devash says that the stargazers had told Ahasuerus that his throne would be inherited by a Jew. His crown would be inherited by a Jew. Ahasuerus was very superstitious. He believed in the stargazer's ability to discern the future. There is something to it. Although we Jewish people are enjoined not to follow that at all, but there is something to it. And in fact, it was true. And it's only now that Ahasuerus realizes why it's true. Moments ago, he's discovered for the first time that his beloved wife is Jewish. And he knows that by Jewish law, the son of Esther, he hasn't fathered any children yet. He will father one child with Esther, according to most opinions. And that child, fathered by Ahasuerus, in his mind, certainly fathered by Ahasuerus, whose name is Darius the second, Daryovish, named after the original Darius the Median, is actually Jewish. Now, Ahasuerus will be assassinated in the end, but his son will assume his throne. So Ahasuerus said, oh... Uh, here I was hating the Jews and wanted to kill the Jews because they were inheriting my, my crown. They were taking my throne away. But they're actually not taking my throne away. <laughs> this, is, this is perfect, he says. Oh, I don't want to kill the Jews anymore. Ahasuerus had all of a sudden shifted 360 to 60 degrees. This is an important, very, very foundational principle to appreciate and understand because it will help us to have a sense of what happened here would also enable us to appreciate what Esther does after when she responds. Rashi does not deal with this problem at all. Rashi says something else. Rashi says that there's a repetition here in the verse and the repetition in the verse is a formula in the Torah that will always allude to a deeper meaning. In Rashi's words, it says, Vayomer HaMelech Achashverosh. King Achashverosh said. Then it says, Vayomer Esther HaMalka. And he said to Esther the queen. All right. You don't have to be a rocket scientist or even an accountant, to realize that the word Vayomer is repeated twice, almost in succession. Vayomer HaMelech Achashverosh, and the king Achashverosh said, Vayomer Esther HaMalka, and he said to Queen Esther, what should it have said? 
The king Achashverosh said to Queen Esther. Now, really, one could argue, why does it even have to say, Vayomer HaMelech HaChashverosh? You could sit and say, Vayomer Esther HaMalka. But even if we have to identify who is speaking and to who the words are being said, why is the word Vayomer repeated twice? So Rashi says, Vayomer, Vayomer, Shnei Pe'omim, Einoi Elo Lemidrash. When you see a word in the scripture repeated not once, but twice, it must be alluding to a deeper meaning. The word drash freely tra translates as homily, but it's also related to the notion of investigation. Like one of the words in modern Hebrew for a detective is a doresh. This requires investigation, or we should expound. This has to be expounded. It is something that cannot be understood on the level of pshat alone. It requires a perspective of drash. It needs, it necessitates looking for something more than what appears superficially. So what is that? And the medrash is, I'll read to you first the words of Rashi, but then I would like to take you with me into the words of the Gemara, because Rashi here is alluding to the words of the Gemara. Initially, Achashverosh would not address Esther directly. Achshav, now, that he has discovered that she is a descendant of royal pedigree. Now, Achashverosh is comfortable speaking to her directly. So it's almost like Achashverosh then speaks to an interpreter, to somebody in between, and then something switches and he addresses Esther in first person. That sounds very, very odd. A man doesn't speak to his own wife, maybe, maybe a king, but she's the queen. Has there always been somebody between Esther and Achashverosh? That would make for some very strange bedroom scenes, don't you think? Let's take a look in the Gemara. The Gemara is found on Daf Tezayin, on page 16 in Mesechet Megillah. These are the pages of the Gemara in which we expound on the verses of the, of the book of Esther. The Gemara says near the bottom third or quarter of the page, Vayemer HaMelech HaChashveresh, Vayemer LaEster HaMalka, Vayemer, Vayemer Lomali. The Gemara transcribes or repeats the words of the Megillah itself, and then the Gemara queries, Vayomer, and again Vayomer, Lomali. What's, why was that necessary? What was missing in the first, and he said, that you had to again repeat, and he said, Omer Rabbi Avohu, Rabbi Avohu says, in the beginning, whenever Achashverosh would speak 
to Esther, it would be Ayadei Turgman. It will be through an intermediary, literally an interpreter. Now that she told him, Now that Esther said, I am a great granddaughter of the first Jewish king, King Saul. Immediately, he changed. Immediately he changed. And now, instead of addressing Esther through an intermediary, at this point, Ahasuerus addresses Esther directly. So, <laughs> what does that mean that he only addressed her through an interpreter? The Ben Yehiyada says something very interesting. Obviously, Achashverosh did not bring a third party into the bedroom. And when they were in private, of course, Achashverosh addressed her directly. How wooden, how weird, how entirely outlandish would it be if there was always somebody between them? But whenever Achashverosh was in public, in view of his office, and in view of the fact that Esther was an unknown commodity, it was deemed almost like an infradig, almost like a diminishing of the dignity of his office if he would address this woman, could be a commoner, could be of slave background, directly. That wouldn't look right for the image that Achashverosh was desperately trying to portray. Remember, if you will, Achashverosh was not of royal pedigree. He married up in life. His father was a royal stable master. He dealt with royal horses and manure. Achashverosh grew up in the proximity of the palace compound. Very brilliant, very brash, very powerful very charismatic, sometimes very foolish. Bull in a china shop kind of personality, but a remarkably strong and confident individual. He literally takes down the monarchy and he catapults himself into the head of the world's largest empire at the time. Casting himself as the most powerful man in the world, he marries up by marrying the granddaughter of the empire's former enemy, the Babylonian Empire, which was swallowed by the Median Persian Empire. He marries the daughter of Belshazzar, the daughter of a king, the granddaughter of Ilvil Merodach, a king, the great-granddaughter of the mighty monarch Nebuchadnezzar. And then he has her brutally slain. Achashverosh has to portray this image. He's taking this dashingly beautiful woman in. She doesn't have a background. She doesn't have pedigree. For all we know, she's a product of rape or something. Nobody knows where she comes from. She herself doesn't talk about her origins, which obviously fuel all kinds of suspicions about her being something less than. 
Ahasuerus wouldn't speak to her directly. In public, he would address her through some kind of royal interlocutor. And now, suddenly Ahasuerus finds out, I married up again. I didn't even know. He doesn't say, I married a Jew. He says, I married a princess. I married a woman who comes from a noble people. I married a woman who comes from nobility. She's got royal blood. It's not beneath my dignity to speak to her directly. Why is this important? Rashi tells us that the words of the Gemara must be taken into consideration if we are to understand the straightforward or simple meaning of what's about to unfold. Allow me to digress for a moment. I want to demonstrate the methodology that's unique to Rashi. The Ibn Ezra is bothered by the same thing. The only Pashtani Hamikra we have at this point in the seventh chapter of Esther is Rashi and Ibn Ezra. Ibn Ezra says, Vayyemir HaMelech, Vayyemir, Pamayim, twice. That the king became infuriated, enraged. And out of great anger, he said, he repeated himself, almost yelling, screaming, raging out of control. Who is this? Who is this? Saying it in words that are injected with incredible anger and rage. We know Achashverosh is angry already. We know that because in the very next verse, when Esther identifies the evil itself, Haman, it says, The king rose in anger. How does it contribute to the larger understanding if we say that Ahasuerus is angry? He was angry. There's no question. Why would the, the scripture have to communicate that to you by telling you the same word twice, that Ahasuerus was enraged? We know that he's enraged. Rashi feels that that's not enough of a reason for the scripture to have repeated itself twice. Ibn Ezra is a stickler to the actual meaning of the words. He says, if we get very technical, if we view verse 5 on its own, it's understood. And he, fueled with rage, said it and repeated himself. We will find out later that he's enraged. The Torah, the, the Megillah will describe in detail how angry he is. Why did the Megillah have to communicate the word Vayomer twice. This is prophecy. Prophecy means that enormous amounts of information that it's relevant are being conveyed to us in a few pithy words, sometimes a nuance, such as the nature of prophecy. It must be studied with great devotion if we are to understand what's really being conveyed to us. So Rashi says, there is no pshat here. When you have a word like this repeated twice, the pshuto, the pshat level, runs out at this point. We know we have a rule that twice is not enough for pshat. We need, we require pshat that's buttressed or augmented by drush, by homily here. 
in the bigger picture, why is it necessary to know that this was said twice? Now think about the words. Think about the idea that's conveyed where Achashverosh suddenly views Esther differently. Everything has just shifted. Esther has just been placed in an entirely new position and happens in the blink of an eye. A light has gone off in Achashverosh's head. He has just elevated Esther. Now she's an equal. Now he sees her too as a royal. Of course he's going to be angry. Of course he's going to be enraged. Most importantly, Esther is now empowered. This is something that may have been an unintended consequence. Here's something to think about. Where in the scripture does it say that Esther revealed her pedigree, her lineage? I'll tell you a little secret. It doesn't. It does say that Esther reveals her identity, her national identity. She said, Give me my life. Just begging for my life. And we explained that in the previous class, why there's the redundancy and difference in nafshi and ami. From I and my nation have been proverbially sold into genocide. Had we only been sold as slaves, I wouldn't bother the king. There is only one nation in the Persian Empire that is now slated for genocide. In fact, it is the only nation ever slated for genocide in its history. So Esther has identified herself as being Jewish. She, in as many words, said, I am a Jew. But she didn't say, I am a descendant of King Saul. Why is the Megillah so sure? Why is the Gemara so sure? The Sif Sechachamim on the Gemara asked this very question. And he says, the Gemara understands this because earlier, when Esther refused to divulge her identity, it says that she would not divulge her identity or her birth. She didn't divulge Amo or Moiladta. And therefore, since earlier she refused to identify herself by virtue of national belonging and pedigree, now that she identified herself as a member of Am Yisrael, she must also have identified her family lineage. Now, the Megillah doesn't speak about it because actually that's not the issue here. Achashverosh didn't have a decree against the descendants of Shaul HaMelech. So the Megillah emphasizes what she did identify, which is herself as Jewish, and the Jewish nation as being slated for genocide. But she also said who she is. She said, um, related to Mordechai, she said, I'm descended from Shaul HaMelech, Ishimini. Our family name is the Yaminis from Binyamin. So now, whether she 
did or did not intend, we may never know. But Hashem arranges it. Everything has just shifted. Achashverosh now is ready to listen to everything Esther is going to say. She's no longer talking up at Achashverosh. Now she's speaking laterally. Now they're face to face. This is the first time that they are addressing each other face to face in a non-intimate setting. Intimacy is something else. That's another story. Now in a formal setting, she's an equal. This much empowers her. It places her in an unprecedented position to be able to make her case. But then again, I refer you back to the original problem. Achashverosh is part of this. She's going to need the wisdom, not of Saul, but of Solomon, to make her next move. Very important to bear all this in mind. So now we understand her position. Now we know what's about to happen. Before we go on, I want to share with you the Maharal's read of what we just said. The shift. Remember the Ma'am Loy is telling us that Achashverosh was sitting on the fence? Even as he allowed Haman to launch his nefarious designs, he remained, if you will, unengaged. Neutral. Like the Swiss were neutral in World War II. Except that they really weren't. We know today that they were complicit with Hitler and his government. But they maintained official neutrality. Achashverosh has assumed up until this point the Swiss position. He's officially neutral. Hear no evil, see no evil. The Red Cross had no idea of what was going on in Auschwitz. How could they know? <laughs> really? Like humanitarian organization. They didn't know that millions of people were being gassed in the city. No, of course not. Neutral. Achashverosh is neutral. He doesn't know. I don't know from nothing. He's arranged it that way all along. So now Achashverosh, who's played neutral, he's actually angry. Maybe he's angry at himself. Maybe he's, he's angry. He's, he's, who could it be? My beloved Esther? Esther is being exterminated? Maharal says that in this shift, Achashverosh just became more attached to Esther. More as like an equal. Instead of a benefactor slash controller. Now all of a sudden Esther is an equal player. The scene, he's seeing her face to face. He's moved one step closer to Esther. And in moving a step closer to Esther, he's moved one step away from Haman. Achashverosh right now is caught between two very powerful people. His wife and his prime minister. His prime minister is the person with whom he has entrusted all of his political fortunes. His wife is whom he has vested himself as a person. And there's a huge issue here because unbeknownst to Haman, Esther 
is actually on the other side. And now it's become crystal clear to Achashverosh. He knows exactly what's going on here, even though he hasn't said it yet. And it's up to Esther to deliver the next devastating accusation and to do it right. Achashverosh has moved closer to Esther. Maharal speaks of this also in spiritual terms. Esther represents Kedusha. Esther represents holiness, subservience to Hashem, the notion of bittel, of absolute, utter obedience and self-abnegation. Haman represents Klippa, an expression of absolute ugly and endless ego that will step over all and any dead bodies to achieve its goal. Achashverosh has just moved closer to Kedusha as he moved away from Klippa. In other words, in playing this neutrality game, something real is actually happening here. Achashverosh, to some degree, really is kind of neutral or kind of in the middle. I know that sounds odd because he's talked about him being an anti-Semite. We'll explain this in a moment. He is kind of like in the middle, and now he's moved closer to Esther. So now the king is leaning in Esther's direction. You can only imagine the pressure. What happens in the next 30 seconds will determine the fate of millions of people. Imagine the pressure Esther must have been under. Millions of people, world history, is now vested in Esther's hands. What she will do in the next 30 seconds will literally make a world of difference. And with this, we move from Pasuk Hey into Pasuk Vav. Vatoimer Esther. So Esther speaks. She says, Ish tsar the Oyev. Esther says, A man who is a persecutor. The word tsar, which literally means pain is somebody who pains others. He is an adversary, a persecutor. He is an enemy. Haman hara hazeh. This wicked Haman. This evil Haman. Ahasuerus asked the question. He said, who? Who is it? And Esther chooses her words so carefully. A persecutor, adversary, an enemy, that wicked man. Why couldn't Esther just answer the question? Achashverosh said, who is it? He didn't ask for descriptions. He didn't ask for a, a flowery definition. He didn't ask for appellations. He said, who is it? She should have said, Haman. That guy. Ishtsar ve'oyev. Haman ar 
Now Haman goes into shock. And we'll see, when we get to verse 7, we'll see about Haman going into shock. But when Esther said, a persecutor, the Medrash Rabbah tells us that Esther said that this is historical. This didn't begin yesterday. This is not because of the present politics or a need to consolidate power in the Persian Empire. No, 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 no. This is an ancient problem. This man has been persecuting us ever since when? It's a legacy of evil and of hate. It goes back generations. The Medrash Rabbah says, a persecutor on high, which could also mean in the depths of his subconsciousness, an enemy below, which can also mean in its iteration or expression, right here. On a deeper level, as the Eitz Yasef says, this man is not only an enemy of the Jewish people, but he is a blasphemer. He is a proverbial persecutor of God and godliness itself. That's the deeper meaning, says the Eitz Yosef and the Matlaskuna of this Medrash. Kol Yisrael our rabbis taught that the real anti-Semite, the real hater of the Jewish people, ultimately hates God himself. And that, and that, said Esther, is the issue at hand. Haman is an Amalekite. He is a persecutor of the ancestors of the Jewish people ever since we were born. In the infancy of our nationhood, as we had left the Reed Sea and turned towards Har Sinai, it was Amalek who attacked us. Amalek has been attacking the Jewish people, undermining the Jewish people, harming the Jewish people ever since the beginning. He is simply behaving in a manner almost preordained. He's reverting to the true ugliness that is his essence. Why is this necessary? Why does Esther now give Achashverosh a history lesson? Of what value is mentioning Amalek, heaven, ancestry? Achashverosh is angry. The iron is hot. The opportunity has presented itself. Eliminate Haman. Who is it? Haman! Simple as that. Why was this necessary? Ah, my friends, but it's so necessary. Because 
remember the initial issue which we raised today. How is Esther going to differentiate between Ahasuerus, the anti-Semite, and Haman, the anti-Semite? Surely Ahasuerus will not self-incriminate. How do you get out of this? It's our problem. Esther brilliantly has arranged things, but not without the help of some pushy angels. Let me introduce you to the next statement in the Gemara, the very next statement. The Gemara says, Vatomer Esther, Esther said, Ish tsar oyev, this adversary, this enemy, this persecutor, Homonarazah, Omar Rebbe Lazar, Rebbe Lazar said, Melamed, from the fact that Esther seems to be going on a whole tangent, a persecutor, an adversary, Melamed, this teaches us that at that moment that Esther was saying those words, Hoiso Mechava Klape Achashverosh, she pointed at Achashverosh. You asked who this is? Are you kidding? You don't know where this came from? You have no idea what's going on in your kingdom? You don't know that an entire nation is slated for genocide on the 13th day of Adar in exactly 11 months from now? You don't know that in your empire there's going to be the mass murder of millions of people? Achashverosh, now you're angry, you're enraged, you're frustrated, you want to know who did this? Are you kidding? Esther's incredulous. She's like holding up a mirror in front of this man. You, who is this man? Ish Tsar A man who's a persecutor and an enemy. Haman Belezer sees something strange. There's two statements going on. This Ish and then this Haman. He says that Esther pointed her finger at Ahasuerus. Does not sound like a very smart thing to do. Ahasuerus is in charge. Esther is brilliant. She's spun a web for, a, for, for several days now with brilliant chess move after brilliant chess move and then she just points her finger at Ahasuerus? What did you expect Ahasuerus to do? Hang himself? Especially after he expressed the anger. Who? Play along. Who? That guy. This really doesn't seem to make any sense. So first, let me tell you what happened. Ubo Malach, an angel came, because remember, at the end of the day, Esther is being aided from on high. Vesata Yoda, an angel came, pushed her hand. So Esther's pointing at Hashveir, and the angel moves the finger. Haman Haraze, Klape Haman. Why in heaven would Esther do something that seems on the surface to be so foolish? I mean, talk about 
dropping the ball at the 99th yard. Like you almost have a touchdown. Esther, you almost saved the whole nation. You couldn't control yourself for another 30 seconds and just answer the question you were asked? What are you giving the commentary for? Worse, why are you pointing a hand at Akashverosh? He's just come close to you. He loves you so much now. He sees you as an equal. He's welcomed you into his circle now as his true soulmate. And then you point a finger at him? What's going on over here? This could make your head explode. The Ben Yehoyada explains the Gemara as such. Esther was the ultimate paradigm of self-sacrifice. In Esther's view, it appeared that there was a gezera, a decree, and somebody would have to die. And Esther said, I will take the bullet for the Jewish people. I'll point the finger at Achashverosh. In his fury, he'll execute me as he killed Vashti. His rage at me will take the place of his rage at the Jewish people. Haman will be next. The people will be saved. That was Esther's intention. Very noble intention. Very hard to swallow this as pshat. But that's what he says. And the Malach saves Esther. There's an entirely different school of thought that's advanced by the Maharal of Prague. The words of the Maharal are also echoed by the Rishon Litzian, the Rishi Yosef. Maharal says that Esther knows that in the end, everything comes from Hashem. And because everything comes from Hashem, if Esther, at this very important moment, misrepresents things, and she says an outright lie, then she has stooped to the moral inferiority of Ahamad and Achashverosh. How could she stoop to Swiss neutrality? How could she stoop to that kind of deception and play a political game. Does not David HaMelech say in Tehillim in Psalm 101, the one who speaks falsity cannot establish? Esther seeks to bring about a great salvation for the Jewish people. So the Maharal says, if Esther had pointed a hand only at Haman, then Esther would have been engaging in an act of deception and an outright lie. And Esther couldn't do that. She reasoned that Geula and Yeshua, that divinely ordained salvation, redemption. Remember, Esther, Esther got fixed on the way into Ahasuerus' throne room. She does not rely on Achashverosh anymore. She has the purest bitochen. She has the purest trust in Hashem. Rabbeinu B'chayah says in Shara Bitochen, 
that when a person places his or her trust in Hashem alone, then Hashem is involved in their affairs. But when a person places his or her trust in the hands of a mortal, Hashem says, no problem. You can be in the hands of a mortal. Esther's betochen is unshakable now. She's operating on the highest level of devotion and commitment to Almighty God. She relies on nobody but the King of all kings. She's not relying on Achashvero. She's not relying on any kind of scheme or politics. No game or machination. Esther relies only on Hashem Yisbarach and is a righteous tzidkonis as an avia prophetess and remarkably holy woman. She says, this can't be done with a lie. I have to say it as it is. You, don't play games with me, Achashverosh. Don't feign anger. Don't express rage. Look in the mirror. You know exactly who allowed this to happen. Esther says, this is how Hashem's redemption will come. <laughs> Incredible act of holiness. Hashem indeed intervenes. And an angel moves her hand. She did the purest, holiest, perfect thing. And Hashem made it work. She said the truth. And Hashem designs it in a way that Achashverosh can dodge the bullet of honesty. And instead, he can, if you will, dust himself off and now come out as the hero. Hashem arranges it that way. That's Golos, my friends. That's the nature of exilic deliverance. Hashem is with us. And it works its way through natural means. So Hashem saves Esther in this moment. The Reish Yasef, the Eitz Yasef, as well as the Vilna Gorn have a totally different explanation as well. They maintain that Esther, if you will, was not exactly choreographing this. It was, it was ornate, it was raw, it was an organic expression. It was real. This was real. In the words of the Gorn, he says, Vihine, he says, Plia, Plia Gedola, this is astounding. Makes no sense, he says. Why would she point a finger at Achashverosh? Klape Achashverosh. He says, Our sages teach us Your thoughts make an impact. What you're thinking of filters through into the realm of external expression. This could be understood, firstly, through what's called body language. Experts on communication coined the phrase leakage. They say your body leaks the truth. For example, it is said that when a person is lying, that they will touch their nose. 
Maybe that's where the story of Pinocchio comes from. But it says there's actually this, like a proven thing. And an expert in the field once showed me a video of Bill Clinton testifying during his impeachment hearing from his Maisim Tevim, his wonderful behavior with Monica Lewinsky. And he says, I did not have, and he's profusely touching his nose as he says those words. Now, that former president is one of the greatest communicators of our time. He's an extraordinary, extraordinary speaker. An excellent communicator, not an orator, an excellent communicator. Very smooth. <laughs> Very deceptive, I think. But an expert at it. And yet, although he sounds believable, he's pulling his nose. And the pulling of the nose is the body language that leaks what he doesn't want you to know. This is also what's referred to in modern terms of psychology as a Freudian slip. You know, the, the hot mic moment. Hot mic moment is people don't know the mic is on. But even when the mic is on, people sometimes will say something and invariably, eventually, they will blurt out what they were thinking. This is what our sages say then, says the Vilna Gaur. He wants to say Shimon, and instead he says Ruven. He's describing a Freudian slip a few centuries before Freud came along because he was thinking of Ruven. Now Esther is no ordinary human being. Indeed, he says. You should know that all tzaddikim, it is their methodology that when they speak words before a king, they think not of the king of flesh and blood. They think of the king of all kings. Esther's thinking about HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And in thinking about HaKadosh Baruch Hu, she knows who Ahasuerus is. She's connected to the Rebishter. She knows the truth. She knows who is a hater of Am Yisrael. And so her body language, the Mepharshim don't say this, but it seems to me. Then the God describes a Freudian slip. Yosef describes similar ideas. It's not only what she said, her body language. Almost subconsciously, she's pointing at Ahasuerus. Her mind is elsewhere right now. This is a moment of supreme devotion to Hashem, of supreme trust in Hashem. And she's perfectly calm and perfectly honest. And a Malach saves her. And her hand moves. Ish tsarvi oyev homon This is one way to understand what we're talking about. The Maharal says that up until this point, Esther had never uttered a lie, even if she didn't reveal the full truth. She never lied. And at this climatic moment, she felt she would have to be pure and truthful, and that would lead to the Geula. So it seems to me that the major difference between these two schools of thought is not whether this was a moment of really brutal honesty, but whether it was choreographed or not. It's Yosef, Rashi Yosef, 
Groh suggesting that it wasn't choreographed, it wasn't smart. Maharal says, yes, it was. It was the purest act of faith, the purest declaration of the truth. And through this, Hashem brought redemption to the Jewish people, not Achashverosh. Interestingly, we don't say Achashverosh is Zachor Latov. We don't remember him as a righteous person, because he wasn't. Which leads us into an interesting discussion of Charvona, but that's for our next episode. I want to finish with this thought. I don't know if we're going to get very far into verse 7. I suspect we'll grind to a halt somewhere in the middle of verse 7 as the clock moves on. I want to share with you the words of the teaching of the Dubna Magid. Because when I started today's class, I mentioned the notion of calling out evil for what it is, being ready to speak the truth. Much of what we've learned contributes towards that. We will oftentimes be tempted to speak of the truth in less than truthful terms. Bad idea. Be bold enough and brave enough and genuine enough to speak truth to power. Call out the anti-Semites amongst us. How? Ah, this is what brings us to the climax of today's teaching. The Dubna Magid suggests that anti-Semitism is a tragic reality. The vast majority of our neighbors has a prejudice towards Jewish people. Sad, tragic, historically demonstrable. Speak to the people, the few survivors who are still left, those who are teenagers and children, in the towns and villages and cities from Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Belarus, Ukraine, before the cattle cars were headed to the crematoriums, when the Jewish community was massacred in ravines and open pits, who participated? The patriots, the anti-communists, the locals. Much has been written about this. Much more should be written about it. For it is a tragic truth. A truth that we have to be aware of, but a truth that should not color our perspective in black tones, in dark tones. We should look in an illuminated way at every single human being and know that each member of the human race is capable of goodness and kindness. It's our job to inspire them to live a life of God consciousness and uplifting morality. And most people are intrinsically good. You just have to help them find their own goodness. The Dubna Magid says, he states emphatically, 
that the vast majority of the world's population is quite capable of nursing and nurturing a hatred, a prejudice, a bias towards the Jewish people. But that hatred, that prejudice, which is innate and inexplicable, needs to be justified. It needs to be explained to themselves. Once it's justified and explained, then it can burn out of control. So those who fought the communists said, the Jews are the communists. This was the way in their minds they convinced themselves that the Jew was their enemy. However, says the Dubna Magad, there is one nation who does not need a reason or an excuse. One nation who does not have to justify his hatred because his hatred is at the very core of his being. He has no redeeming goodness to him. His name is Amalek. Amalek represents the ultimate evil which cannot be rehabilitated. An evil which cannot be brought around. The Dubna Magid compares the words Ish Tsar the Oyev with the Torah's words for Esau, Esau, the ancestor of Amalek. It says Ish Sada. It was his nature, it was his predereliction. Amalek almost can't help himself. Esther says to Achashverosh, I know you're an anti-Semite. I know you didn't like the Jewish people. Maybe it's like we read from the Yaras Devash because he was told a story, a Jew would inherit his throne without realizing that was his own son. Maybe because somebody said to him, the Jewish people are bad for the economy. They are going to eat away at the political structure you're trying to build. They will undermine your position. All of this is excuses. These are all the proverbial reasons that become the conduit for that ugly lava of the hatred to spew forth. But you asked who? You asked why? Esther said, Ish tsar ve'oyev. Haman harazeh. Because this evil Haman doesn't need an excuse. He burns with a hatred for the Jewish people for no reason at all. Because he is a Amalek. It's in his blood. It's in his DNA. He's not capable of anything but hatred and murder. That's the truth. Haman is the source, says the Dubna Magid, of all anti-Semitism, of all hatred. He is, if you will, the ugly fountain of poisonous water that infects the bloodstream of decent, otherwise appropriate people. We didn't wrong anybody. We didn't do anything to anybody. We're not deserving of all that hatred. But these things can easily be justified. And we are watching it unfold in real time in our day and age. Now the Jew has become Israel. 
Reb Yisrael, an individual Jew that was hated, has now become reframed as Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel, who is hated. The hatred does not come because of proverbial dispossession, which is a lie. It does not come because of the supposed colonization, which is a demonstrable lie. It does not come because we have been begotten on the backs of another proud nation, the greatest lie of all time. Arafat is born in Egypt. His entire file is a KGB fabrication. This is from the same people that produced the protocols of the elders of Zion. Though now it's not a cabal of Jews in a basement somewhere, now it's the Knesset of the Israeli government. The hatred towards Israel is not for the reasons they say it is. Ish Tsarvi Oyev. It is the very same hatred that fueled the Holocaust. It's the very same hatred that fueled the Inquisitions and the pogroms. It's the same hatred that fuels BDS. Even if there are many unwitting, possibly well-intentioned members of Am Yisrael who tragically are swimming with the enemy. All the excuses come later. Ahasuerus, you asked the question. I'm going to tell you the truth, the ugly truth, the bitter truth, the painful truth. Ish tsar v'oyev homon It's not justifiable. There's no reason. Had you sold us as slaves or servants, had you dispossessed us from our possessions, he wants murder, extermination, genocide. There's no excuse. It comes from raw and ugly hatred. When faced with this truth, Achashverosh absorbs its message with lightning speed. And he's enraged. He's enraged that he has been taken on this ride. In his mind, he was really neutral. In his mind, he was sold a bill of goods. In his mind, they told him that the Jewish people did A, B, and C. It's all Haman's fault, he said. I didn't really want to be the master of genocide. I don't want to see millions of people murdered. I thought it was the right thing to do. It's all his fault. And in this moment of truth, Achashverosh responds with tremendous rage. Now the king arose in wrath. From a wine feast, it's not a party anymore. It's not fun. He goes out to the orchard's garden. Why does he do that? We'll talk about that in the next episode. And Haman saw that the jig is up. He saw that the king's hostility was already predetermined. As the Megillah goes on to tell us, and he goes out and we're to talk all about why he goes that but I want to just zero in to the Rashi here and the Ibn Ezra and we will Bezrat Hashem come back to all of this Haman sees Ahmad Lavakish on Haman sees his very life flash before his eyes now he realizes that Esther holds the keys to his release only she can save him now 
ki ra'a, because he saw, ki khalsa ilav ha ra'a meis For the anger or the evil, the ra'a has been predetermined. Rashi says, khalsa nigmara ra'a. The bad is complete, finished off. The sikhsikhah means, well, if the bad is complete, what's the problem? Ha, no, 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 no. It means it's now decided. The die is cast. Vahasina, and the hatred towards him. Vahanekama, and the burning drive for vengeance. Haman realizes at this point, Achashverosh realizes that he's been sold a bill of goods, walked out a proverbial garden path. Achashverosh will not relent. Achashverosh will not back down. It is futile and pointless for Haman to try to reason his way out now. His only chance is with Esther. And in fact, that is what seals his fate. The Alshech points out that Haman could have defended himself. He could have said, you're angry about the queen. I didn't know. She never told us she was Jewish. Had I known she was Jewish, I never would have said such things. Haman was shocked. He was overwhelmed. He was terrified. As it says, you'll forgive me, I miss reading these words in verse 9. Haman was totally overwhelmed. Ibn Ezra says that the word nivas means nival, totally disoriented. Milifnei hamelech vahamalka. Standing before the king and the queen. He was disoriented. Haman lost his golden tongue. His ability to talk himself out of any situation was suddenly robbed from him. And Haman was shell-shocked and overwhelmed. The Alshach says this too was a miracle. Because Haman had this incredible saying for He could have sailed through this. He could have talked his way out of it. But he didn't. This too was Hashem's miracle. So verse 6 is full of miracles that you wouldn't notice otherwise. Esther's hand being moved. Esther speaking the truth and hitting the target. Haman being tongue-tied, shell-shocked, and doesn't mount a defense for himself. The king leaves. He's not engaged anymore. The king walks out on him. Haman realizes it's over. You can't now mount your case because Esther's words have already been received. The die is cast. At this point, Haman knows his only chance is Esther. And so he turns to Esther to plead for his life. And as you will see, that will seal his fate. You know, my friends, in closing, when you study the Megillah properly, when you take the time to work your way through the verses, word by word, line by line, you realize how many miracles occurred in nanoseconds in these climatic moments. And on the surface, it all seems like a story. And that's exactly the point of the Megillah. Our Galut survival seems like a story. Seems like it's Esther's wisdom, her guile, her insight, her strategy. But in the end, the truth is that it's really the help of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. It's really Hashem who, so to speak, is calling the shots and saving us at every step of the way. This is the story of the Megillah in its origin, and it is the story of the continued survival of Am Yisrael until Bimheiro Biomeno very speedily 
And hopefully this year, we will see the Geuloha Mitis Vahashlema, the true and complete redemption with the arrival of Mashiach, Bemheira, Ubi Amenu. Amen. Thank you.